The next part of our program will focus on legal matters and specifically cover issues related to umbrella funds and the, and the default regulations. We are very pleased and honored to have present to us Jonathan Mort, one of South Africa's foremost legal minds and a person many of us not only know, but have had the pleasure of working with. Jonathan is the director of Jonathan Mort Inc., a specialist pension law firm. His legal practice covers all aspects of the law relating to pension funds, and he advises funds and employers throughout South Africa and other Southern African countries. His specific areas of interest is in governance and investment issues related to pension funds. He is also an experienced pension fund trustee. He acts as a non-executive director on the nominee company, unit trust company, and life company of Alan Gray, and has been an inspector of financial institutions. Jonathan is a past president of the Pension Lawyers Association, is on the South African Actuarial Society Disciplinary Committee, is on the advisory committee of the South African Pension Fund Investment Forum, and is also on the steering committee of the International Pension and Employee Benefits Lawyers Association, otherwise known as IPEBLA. He is also the directing editor of IPEBLA's comparative survey of pension fund law issues. His firm has won the prestigious Imbasa Yegolide Award of Law Firm of the Year twice in the last three years. It's a great privilege to have Jonathan present us. Thanks very much, Jonathan. Thanks very much, Costa. It's really good to be with all my actuarial colleagues and friends who I work with, many of whom I work with and deal with. So I am going to be talking principally around umbrella funds and the default regs. And um, uh, uh, firstly, I'm starting off with fiduciary duties generally. Um, from what I've experienced, many people simply don't know what that really means. And then, because it is very much an issue at, at the moment of migrating uh, standalone occupational funds to umbrella funds, what the um, transfer board's responsibilities are and what the employer's responsibilities are, it would just be helpful to go through some of those issues. And then on the default regs, I'm dealing with the three pillars of that, which are the investment, uh, default investment portfolios, the default preservation, and the default annuities, just certain aspects of them. I'm sure you're all very familiar with, uh, with those. So to start with the fiduciary duties generally, as you know, this was codified into Section 7C of the Pension Funds Act, that the board um, shall, in pursuing its object of managing the fund, have a fiduciary duty to members and beneficiaries in respect of accrued benefits or any amount accrued to provide a benefit as well as a fiduciary duty to the fund to ensure that the fund is financially sound and is responsibly managed and governed in accordance with the rules and the Pension Funds Act. So that's, it's, it's good to put it in there because it puts to bed the, the argument about whether there is a fiduciary duty owed by the board, but it still doesn't help us know exactly what that fiduciary duty is. So, um, the um, leading case on fiduciary duties is this case of Phillips versus Fieldstone, Africa. And it's not a pension law case at all. It actually happened to, to deal with an employee who left an employer and took a secret profit from, uh, after he left, from work that he had done as an, uh, for, that, for that particular employer. And so the question was, when does a fiduciary duty arise? and what are the consequences of it, and specifically around secret profits. So, 
The court held there's no set list of when and when there isn't a fiduciary duty. It all depends on the circumstances. And if there is a fiduciary duty, then it's, it is so because they are, all three of these um, characteristics are present. Firstly, there's the scope for the exercise of some discretion or power. That power or discretion can be used unilaterally by a person to affect the legal or practical interests of the beneficiary. And thirdly, that beneficiary is specifically vulnerable to how that power or discretion is exercised. Okay, it's, it's, it's quite simple in a way. Um, you, somebody has a power, if they exercise it in a certain way, it will affect financially or otherwise uh, somebody else. And, I mean, many of us would be parents, we'd know we actually act effectively as fiduciaries when we take decisions in relation to our children. So it follows from this that the greater the vulnerability, the greater the fiduciary responsibility. And so you could say in, in some situations there, there isn't that much fiduciary responsibility. For example, in, in retail funds where people can, can, can come and go without penalty and make informed decisions themselves, that the fiduciary duty is much less than, for example, in a DB fund where the trustees determine things like pension increase policy, the, um, how the investments are to be made, which, back the, you know, which provide the ultimate benefits and so on. So then, what does that actually mean? How have the courts interpreted um, this fiduciary duty in, in the case of pension funds? The most important thing to note is that they've interpreted it very narrowly. And I'll give you two examples. In the famous tech case um, held, which was decided before the surplus legislation was introduced, and it was specifically around how, you know, surplus, um, because the issue was this fund had a whole lot of surplus and they wanted to apply it in a certain way to benefit the employer. And, and in fact, the rules didn't provide for it, there was no law about it, and the court said this. The trustees have no inherent or unlimited power as trustees to deal with the surplus as they de de see fit, notwithstanding their fiduciary duty to act in the best interests of the members and the beneficiaries of the fund. So you, you would think that if you have to do the best you can for your beneficiaries, which is how people tend to think of the fiduciary duty, surely that means you must just apply this in the best possible way for their benefit. But the court said, no, 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 you can't do that. You simply have to provide what is promised. You, you can't go further than that. And then in this other case of Mayer versus the Escort Pension Fund, they, uh, in that particular case, um, the trustees amended the fund rules to provide an additional benefit. And poor old Mr. Mayer, uh, missed it by two weeks because he, he exited the fund two weeks before the effective date of this rule amendment. And he argued that the trustees should have taken account of people like him and they should have treated people equally. And the court said, no, that's not so. This is what the court said. It doesn't ex the fiduciary duty doesn't extend to amending the fund rules to benefit members, even if the power to amend is within the power of the trustees. 
And then if they do amend the, 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 the rules, they are not obliged to do so retrospectively to ensure equality. And members do not have a legitimate expectation that the rules will be amended to benefit them. Even if the fund can do that, even if the fund can afford to do that. So it's a very narrow power. The point is, the trustees must simply provide the benefit promised. They're not obliged to do anything else. Um, I mean, so, so that's quite an important point to understand at the very outset, that when you're dealing with things like migrations, uh, you know, transfer to pension funds, uh, umbrella funds and so on, what do the rules actually say? And so we'll, we'll come to that. The other point about the fiduciary duty is that the courts apply it very, very strictly. So they, they're not as casual, I think, as we tend to be in our environment, where you know, if you have a conflict of interest, it must just be managed. The courts are very, very strict, and you see this in the rules around secret profits. So in that Phillips case that I referred to, the court said very clearly, a fiduciary cannot make any kind of secret profit out of what they do because what they do always is for the benefit of their principal. And, and the only thing that you can, only way you can get around that is for the, the principal or the beneficiary to give their free and informed consent. And it doesn't matter whether the fund could not have suffered loss. The fund um, w would not have suffered a loss because the opportunity wasn't available to it. Or the fund, even if it had the opportunity, had refused it. Or there's no relationship between the fund and the entity which provided the benefit. And it wasn't part of the fiduciary's duty to get the benefit. And that the fiduciary even acted honestly and reasonably. None of that actually makes any difference. You cannot get that secret profit. So the courts are very, very strict about this. So why is this relevant in dealing with the migration to umbrella funds? Well, firstly, it's important for the trustees of the transfer fund to know exactly what their responsibilities are. And secondly, um, inevitably, the employers involved in this whole arrangement and the employer should know what its responsibilities are and specifically whether it has a fiduciary duty. The important thing about a fiduciary duty is once it's established, there's automatically a duty of care. So you have an obligation to the people to whom you owe that duty. The big thing in, in when you're planning these moves to umbrella funds is you have to map out the process. So as part of that, you look at the rules of the transfer fund, and usually the, the employer has the power unilaterally to terminate the fund itself, doesn't need the board's consent or the member's consent. And usually the board decides to which fund the, the members should be transferred. So using those two tools, you can then pass a rule amendment. But before you pass a rule amendment, because you've got to look at this as a, as a pre-liquidation um, transfer out of benefit liabilities. And it's generally better to do it prior to liquidation because uh, the trustees have more control over it, the employer can have input over it, and, and, and generally it's a, better, it's a better arrangement from the aspect of the member. Um, so these are some notes about the process. Firstly, it's, if there is surplus, 
it's better to do the transfer first and the surplus apportionment later. Because if you try and do them at the same time, you will end up with what happened, or you could end up with what happened with the Telumat pension fund, um, which coincidentally happened to be the same tech pension fund that I quoted about, where they, um, uh, I won't go into the whole anecdote, it's very interesting, but they ended up with a massive surplus, only a pensioner pool, and they allocated something like 55% to the members and 45% to the employers. And as part of the, and then the, the, the pensioners were to exit to annuities they were to choose. And the whole process got bogged down for about 10 years in litigation because of unhappiness about the surplus distribution, which in the event the Supreme Court um, ultimately upheld. But the point is, the point is you don't want to, because surplus distributions can be quite contentious. You want the transfers to happen and then the surplus to ha the arguments to be, to be later. Um, in respect of the pensioners, secondly, it's important to note that there's no obligation on the trustees to do anything other than simply replicate the benefit regime in the rules. Usually there's quite often a bit of pressure for the opportunity to be taken to given, giving them a living annuity, but you are fully within your rights to resist that. Um, sometimes you can do a kind of blended approach, but that's a topic for another day. So this is uh, what I find works for this kind of rule amendment. You need a trigger, which is the employer giving notice of its intention to terminate the fund. You build this into the rule amendment. And once the employer presses that trigger, there are some things which the trustees have to do. The first is they have to transfer the members, as at a certain date, the actives, to an occupational fund chosen by the employer. Um, it's a compulsory transfer. And secondly, they must transfer the pensioners to an insurer. Again, compulsory. Thirdly, once the transfers have happened, they must distribute the surplus. And then finally, once the surplus is distributed, you can press the um, liquidation button. I prefer the liquidation button rather than deregistration because liquidation does properly extinguish the actual liabilities in the fund. You don't want the fund to be resuscitated because somebody lays a claim against uh, somebody for whether it's a balance of cost claim or, or something. Uh, saying there's a further liability. Um, there is a beneficial tax treatment as well to, if there's surplus to be paid to pensioners as former members rather than as a bonus pension prior to transfer out. Um, that's, it's, it's a smallish point, I suppose, and it only applies to, to, to taxpayers who are paying uh, at a marginal rate. So the rule amendment should provide for these things, you need to account for, take account of Section 15G enhancements. Um, uh, you also need to build into the rule amendment that when you do the surplus, you should take account of what was included in the Section 15G enhancement. As I said, the transfers out of both actives and pensioners must be mandatory. And, and that's fully justified because because it's a pre-liquidation process, it would have been mandatory in the liquidation process, and, and it's, it's just much simpler. 
Um, and you should look at the governance provisions because once you've transferred out all the actives, if you've got member elected trustees and someone passes on or something, you might be left with a gap and having to invoke section 26, which is just a cumbersome way of um, dealing with something you could have actually put into the rule amendment. The communication is very important and, and you need to make sure it's restricted just to the transfer and not to the surplus. And to spell out the point that the surplus communication will, will follow and they will be included in that. Um, and, and say it only relates to the transfer value. Um, the duties of the transfer fund board. So this is quite important. They, they're only responsible in terms of section 14 for making sure that the transfer value meets the reasonable benefit expectations of, of, of the accrued benefit. So the, the, the thing about whether they're going to an appropriate fund, whether the costs are right, whether the, um, the risk arrangements, the insured risk benefits are, are, are correct, those, in my view, are all employer issues because, remember, this is a benefit promised by the employer. So those are not things that the, the, the transfer board should, in my view, really be getting involved with. Um, if there are issues like that, then obviously they, they do need to be brought out. Um, and I've already said you need to apply Section 15G where, where it's appropriate. This is the important part. I, when I mentioned uh, one of the main reasons of talking about the fiduciary duty is, is to say, you know, actually, if you think about it, the employer also has a fiduciary duty because it's exercising a power to transfer members to a specific fund. If the, if the employer exercises that power badly, in other words, transfers to a fund that is um, badly managed, uh, that's got poor investments, uh, investment regime, that will unquestionably affect the active members being transferred. And, 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 and there could be possibility that the employer has a liability. But this is, this is important. The employer is responsible for identifying the transferee fund. It's not, the, it's not the transfer or board's responsibility. Um, it's the employer that must do the due diligence on that fund, not the transfer board. And it's the employer that agrees with that transferee fund what the insured benefit regime is. Often there's a change in that benefit regime because you might have had self-insured benefits in the transfer fund and so on. Um, but all of that is actually the employer's responsibility. Often the employer looks to the transfer fund to, for input, especially as there are uh, members of that fund on the transferee, uh, transferal board, and, and so they, they would be able to provide the employer with a valuable informed input. Um, and I've spoken about the fiduciary duty. Um, and then the employment contracts of the actives being transferred should just be checked. I've never come across um, an employment contract which promises a defined benefit, uh, retirement uh, benefit, but, but it's possible that it could. And if there was something like that, then you would have to actually negotiate a change of that employment contract before you actually did the transfer, because otherwise the employer would be acting in breach of the employment contract. Um, this due diligence process 
In my view, it's actually um, an understated part uh, and not properly acknowledged how important it is. Um, so as I said, the employer should know that they, they have a potential liability if they don't carry this out properly. And this is a due diligence of the umbrella fund, um, specifically to look at the umbrella fund governance. Does it, does it meet those four, what I call the purposes of good governance, which is to ensure that the benefit promised is actually delivered, that the benefit is optimal within an appropriate uh, level of risk, um, that the costs are transparent and justifiable, and that the way that they deliver the benefits is, is credible and can be trusted. Um, they should be looking specifically at the costs and the reasonableness of that, um, and especially looking at the admin systems. Um, as you know, administering an umbrella fund is very, very complex and difficult. It's completely different from a standalone fund. And many of these um, sagas we've seen with some of these umbrella funds getting into trouble have all been because of the admin systems have been poor. Um, important to clarify the role of the IFA, who's paying their costs, um, the benefit consultant, what kind of mancom is it, the different variations of it, um, where does any responsibility for the employer lie, does it lie with the mancom, is there PI cover for the mancom, and so on. And then, very importantly, which and we'll get to this, um, often the employer has input onto the default arrangements, um, the umbrella fund invites them, you, I think, well, as we'll see, as from 1 March next year, it will be the Umbrella Fund Board that is responsible for that. But at present, most um, Umbrella Funds actually require the employer to determine what the default arrangement is. So that means that the, you need to take a view, the employer needs to take a view about the risk profile of their, their members. Um, a financial services f company would have a different risk profile from a mining company. Um, so that's on the umbrella funds, and I'm going to race on with the default regs to make sure I keep in my time. So I'm covering, as I said, the three regs, 37, 38, and 39. Um, important when you look at those is to note that a number of the terms are actually defined. So you, you should just have a, have a look and, and look at the beginning of the regs just to see specifically which are the defined terms because they have a bearing on the actual regulations themselves. I'm just picking up certain aspects of these um, with which I'm sure you're all familiar, but it's good to refresh our memories. So the, on the investment portfolio, it only applies to DC funds, also including obviously preservation funds, and have a look at the definition, both of default investment portfolio and investment portfolio. An investment portfolio is one owned by the fund or an insurer in terms of a fund policy or a collective investment scheme. It has to comply with Reg 37, and it may differ in composition per member depending on age or normal retirement date. So you can have a life stage thing the value of retirement savings, the amount of contributions per member, or any other factor decided by the board. We're still feeling our way here. I think when uh, the next, next year we'll actually see what variants actually come out in the market. Um, the default investment portfolio must be appropriate for its object, objective, underlying asset allocation, 
the fees and charges and the expected risks and returns for the category of members defaulted into that. So that's where this, this profile of the, of the member is so important. Um, there is a question mark about whether it can apply in an umbrella fund per employer. That's what the IRF has raised with um, the regulator. My view is it can, it can because it's clearly you can do it on a per member basis, it seems to me. Um, just bear in mind the preamble to Reg 28 in this, because I think that informs part of how we should understand the investment um, defaults, where it says the investment approach must be to earn adequate adjusted returns suitable for the fund-specific member profile, liquidity needs, and members. So this thing about properly profiling your members is, is uh, there's quite a bit of work to be done on that, I think. And I think um, actuaries have a particularly important role in, in, in that. So in terms of subsection, sub-regulation two, it's the board that's responsible for the appropriateness of the default. I think up until now it's been the employer that's taken that responsibility. So this is very important. I think uh, we're going to see in the SLAs that, that um, umbrella funds are going to want the employers to make warranties about what they think is the right um, uh, profile, risk profile for their membership. We will also obviously need um, default investment portfolios for paid-ups, which will probably be the same as the actives, but undoubtedly different from unclaimed benefits so, I mean, that's quite an interesting quirk we've now got because previously unpaid withdrawal benefits would have been unclaimed benefits. Now they're going to be paid ups and now there has to be a specific um, investment, uh, default investment portfolio for them for in-fund living annuities and for deferred retirees. So it's going to be quite interesting seeing how these evolve and there's lots of room for product development and so on. And then this is the rest of the regulation. Must be a default investment portfolio must be communicated to members. Fees and charges must be reasonable and competitive, fully disclosed. Passive and active investments must be considered. No complex fee structures or locked-in arrangements where there's member investment choice must be able to exit at least annually. Compulsory review obligation and the FSEA can exempt from compliance. So it'll be interesting to see where and on what basis exemption is sought. Um, and then moving on to default preservations. So, so this, unlike the default investment portfolio, applies to DB and DC, but only occupational funds. So as I said earlier, no more unclaimed benefits from withdrawals, um, which, is, which is very interesting. So the wording in Reg 38.1b is interesting. When members leave service, the member, those members are, must be made paid up members until the fund is instructed in writing to pay out or transfer the benefits due to the member. You could read that as saying that the members can only make that election once they've left service. But, but that would be, I mean, that would be very difficult uh, because often you make all your decisions just before you, before you leave service. 
and you know it it, it would be helpful to be clarified if that were clar were clarified if if you could give it your instruction before you left service well then there would seem to me to be possible you could you know give the instruction when you enter service which for some of these very big funds which have a very high turnover of short um, you know where, where uh, after short service and where they just unif you, you, invariably just transfer to an unclaimed benefits fund they may be able to transfer to preservation funds um, but that's a different issue Importantly, the fees cannot differ according to whether a member is paid up or active. So for umbrella funds, this is quite significant because often for the big employers, there's a special deal arranged and that now has to be carried through to those paid ups. And then what happens when those, um, that employer leaves that umbrella fund and so on? Um, you know, and you want to upgrade the, change the fee regime and so on. Um, there we go. The other things, obviously, we'll have to be working on. Um, then, if it's a DB fund, um, and they don't make give a direction about how the benefit is to be dealt with on exit, they become a DC paid up. So it's possible in DB funds you will have two types, effectively, of deferred pensioners. One being the, the, the DC paid up, and then the, the, the classic kind of deferred pensioner as we, as we know it in a DB fund. Um, the and then the, the regulation says the rules must set out arrangements for paid up death benefits, retirement benefits and early retirement. So the big question many of us would ask is does this mean we can avoid um, section 37C for, for these paid ups? My view is you can't. Um, they're, they're, they're still a member. You could, if, the, if, you, if, if you were able to say that they were just a, um, you know, a creditor of the fund, but it seems to me that they, they still are actually members because they haven't taken their actual benefit. I know there is a contrary view by one big a, um, uh, administrator, so they will have to see exactly where we go as well. So no once-off charge on becoming paid up. The rules must also provide that a fund must accept paid-up benefits as a DC benefit received from another fund. There's no charge for that. Um, no contributions may be paid by or in respect of a paid-up member, and there cannot be any deductions for risk benefits. So, um, like any other active member on retirement, they must have access to retirement benefits counselling before withdrawal benefit paid or the benefit is transferred and again the FSCA can exempt from compliance. Um, there's an interesting issue here. You know the um, employer can lodge a claim against um, a member's benefit uh, in terms of section 37D1B usually if there's either for a loan or for um, if they've caused a loss through dishonesty. The wording in 37D1B talks about when uh, a member leaves the fund on retirement or when ceases to be a member of the fund. So, so th the wording of that would seem to imply to me that you need to change your fund rules so that when a person ceases to be in service, because they still remain a member as a paid up member, 
when they leave service, then the employer can actually um, implement that. Um, and then on to the final section, which is default annuities. All funds, whether DB or DC, occupational funds, preservation funds and RA funds, must have a default annuity strategy. A strategy must be appropriate for specific classes of members. And this will be interesting to see, I was just chatting uh, earlier, um, whether it's going to be allowed to have a living annuity as a default option, um, and, and whether uh, you would have a, a, a default annuity as, as a with profit, or, or what would you do? How would you separate um, your membership in deciding what kind of uh, a default annuity you, you should have? You may well need to categorize your member membership, and this this part I think is going to be really quite difficult, because you don't know what the full financial circumstances of the membership are. Um, so, in devising the strategy, the board must ascertain the level of income payable to retirees and the investment inflation and other risks and income protection needs. It must be communicated to members what the asset classes are, the performance and charges to the income. Um, the trustees must make sure the annuity fees are reasonable and disclosed to members. And the, obviously the retirees must get uh, retirement benefits counseling. It must be, this default strategy must be reviewed annually. Um, this need for retirement benefits counseling is, is a very, very, this, this requirement is a very, very good one, in my view. So there are some specific provisions around living annuities. They can be paid by the fund itself. Um, I mean, there are some funds I know of which have had this for years. Um, or through an insurer, or through a fund policy. But it must be limited to four investment choices. If it's paid for by the fund or as a fund policy, the fund must monitor the sustainability of the income of the annuitant. So that will be interesting. Um, and I foresee quite a few complaints to the adjudicator about uh, from annuitants saying that trustees are, are not allowing them to take the maximum drawdown or invest in um, very high income uh, generating investments. Um, then you can have any other type of annuity, obviously, with profit, guaranteed, even level, I suppose. Um, and as with the other defaults, the FSCA can grant exemptions. And I think that's it. So we have time for questions and discussion and debate. Any questions for, for Jonathan? Natasha. I've got a question here. Thanks, uh, Jonathan. Um, my question goes to that choice of umbrella fund, yeah. and quite often, or not even so much the choice, but the buy-in level. You know, there, there's very often, uh, you know, a low product, a medium product, and a high product, which comes with different fees, mm. and the range of investments that are available to you are more expensive depending on the level at which you, you come in. Mm. I mean, is that the, the employer, by electing the level at which he's willing to buy in, almost then restricting the 
the, the default that the members are available to. I mean, yeah, it's kind of a bit of a, right. a, a circular. I just I, uh, appreciate a bit no, more. No, that's a good point. Your I mean, thoughts and your, your views on that. Yeah, I mean, that's a very good example of how the employers exercising a power which affects the financial as a financial consequence for the member. So, I mean, it's. You know, in the, where this starts is in the employment contract, where the provision is simply along the lines of usually you must belong to the fund in which the employer participates. And the employer determines as part of that what the arrangements are around the participation. So it would seem to me the employer is within their rights to choose whichever option you're talking about, and then it becomes an employment issue, nothing to do with the fund about whether that's an appropriate thing or not. The problem is the, you know, the members usually don't have anywhere near the kind of financial skills to enter into a debate with the employer. And the employer may well be motivated by, I mean, if they choose a very ex a, uh, expensive one, motivated by what the executive team and the employer wants, for example, rather than what's appropriate for, for the, you know, the, the factory workers. Um, so I think I think there's a lot of work to be done still for employers to know appreciate properly what the consequences of their decisions are, and they they're going to need uh, very clearly the input of of actuaries on, on issues like this. Incidentally, I don't see a problem with with the transfer or fund actuary also giving input to the employer on issues like this. Um, after all, the transfer fund actuary often knows best um, what the risk profile is of the of the fund membership, and there's no, there's no real conflict uh, at all because they're, they're different functions that they perform for the fund and for the employer. Um, yeah. Anything else? Arthur, there's two questions there. Arthur and then Ray. Uh, thanks, Jonathan. Hello, Arthur. Just morning or good afternoon. <laughs> Uh, Jonathan, just that question of sustainability, that's really a taxing one. You've got a member who retires, takes a living annuity. Uh -huh. What does it mean by check the sustainability? Do you have to make sure that the percentage drawdown is sufficient to allow him to draw the pension for the rest of his life expectancy? Well, uh, yes. I mean, I think... I think I think the object is for it to be for the expectancy of that person's life. Okay, um, I'll just take that further. Right, the life expectancy uh, increases. So, for example, a yes. 65-year-old's life expectancy yes. might be 20. That person gets to 80. Yeah. It's another 10 years to go. Yes. Yeah. So do you have different uh, percentages applying depending upon the age? And then your point is, too, complaints to the pension fund adjudicator to say, well, I want to draw 10%, I'll only allow me 5%, I think it's really unfair. So does the board have to make sure uh, there's enough money, well, to give an income for life yeah. expectancy? It's yeah, it's, I mean, I think we're going to have to see our, feel our way through. I mean, you may have a member saying, look, I have a poor family history, you know, we're prone to heart attacks and strokes, and nobody has ever lived beyond 70 and the employers and the fund are saying, no, 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 we have to use the actuarial tables of 84, whatever, as your expected mortality. And the member saying, but, you know, that's grossly unfair. Why? I don't, I don't want my children to have 
something on my desk. You, you know, I want to enjoy it myself for what I've worked for. So, yeah. Uh, right. Yes, so thank you, Jonathan. Um, I'd like your kind of view on, on the, from a member's perspective. When you retire, it's, it's on, you're on your own in a defined contribution environment. And yet all these decisions that we've been talking about, the employer makes this decision, to what extent does the member get involved in that or get told about that? So you've got all these things that are made on your behalf as you move from one fund to another fund. Uh, you might find a lot of members say, well, look, if, if, if I've got to bear the responsibility of what's available to me when I retire, I want to make those decisions myself. Yeah, you see, I mean... I mean, that, 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 certainly when you become an employee, you enter the whole pool of employees. And there isn't, like there is in Australia and some jurisdictions, the opportunity to have individual arrangements. So, so you have to accept what the employer says. The problem is um, you only realise when you come to retire, often, how bad the decision might have been for what the employer had chosen. You know what I mean? Very few people, when they start employment, or even during the course of their employment and their employers changing funds or something, are likely to have any insight into what the consequences of that are probably going to be for them when they actually get to retirement. And, um, I mean, it could be an interesting issue, you know. Um, person gets to retirement and then says to the employer, but, you know, you made a decision about my future, which has turned out to be actually very bad. Did you get professional advice about it? Did you, you know, what kind of due diligence did you do? Um, that, that, that's why I'm highlighting this emphasis on, on the employer's responsibility. And, and you know, especially when, when employers move to umbrella funds, it's often sold on the basis that now you don't have to worry about anything at all. We will just do everything for you the umbrella fund or the sponsor or whatever. You don't have to think about it. In fact, usually the contrary is the case because whilst it's an occupational fund, the employer is directly involved and, and can have input in it. Sorry, there are some questions here. Two more questions. John. Uh, Jonathan, just a quick one on um, employers and you know, their involvement. I mean, you mentioned that on default investment strategies, you get the input from them, but, but let's put a practical example here. Let's say you've got an umbrella fund um, that provides a menu of options, uh, but leaves it up to the employer to decide from that menu. The menu, each of those options, however many they are, all comply. Uh, it's just that the employer must decide. And the rationale for that would be employers are better equipped to understand you know, the, the, the membership profile for trustees to have one default that suits the needs of everybody. Blue collar, white collar, different profiles, different needs, different uh, you know, ideas on money. The example that I gave you now, is that possible or, or, or is it not possible? Um, John, I need to think about it a bit more, to be honest. I mean, I can see, I, you know, the, the reg, regulation says the board must make sure the default is appropriate, okay? Whether that extends to saying the menu of defaults is appropriate from which the employer can choose 
is a different thing. Uh, I fully accept the employer is in a better position to determine what the right default is, with, though, some expert input. You know, I don't think most employers are able to take that kind of decision. You know, the chain of coffee shops, you know, how would they actually know what their risk profile of their, their members is supposed to be? So where they get that input is, is critical to this about them making the right decision. Yeah. One last question. The section 14s again, and about the due diligence in choosing the transfer refund. Yeah. Um, on the, the section 14 documentation, the trustees normally sign off that there's communication done and that the, the members have been able to make an informed choice and that there's objections and that objections are dealt with. Does it not put some sort of onus on the trustees as part of that due diligence? No, it does. And, and look, there's like a real snake pit going on there from what I can see, this whole thing about broker IFAs selling this because often I suspect there's better commission payable and, you know, churn of employers between umbrella funds and misrepresentation about why they're actually moving from one fund to another. I have seen examples where trustees of, a, of an... Of the transfer all fund are very unhappy about the communication that's gone out because, I mean, ideally you should agree that communication with the transfer all fund and the and the employer should really go from both of them transfer all fund or anyway at least from the employer because the employer's decision. Um, the problem is whether it's competent for the FSCA to say. There's a misrepresentation there, which has nothing to do with the actual value of the benefit transferred. You know, if we, we, mostly we're always dealing with DC benefits being transferred, and there's no dispute around that. But if there are other things, and this is what you do find, all sorts of other things are promised in the uh, transferee fund, which may not be in the transferor fund, but there are different benefits in the transferor fund, like a different type of funeral benefit, which is... You know, it's completely irrelevant to the Section 14 transfer. Whether the FSEA can rule on the fact that that has been correctly represented when it's got nothing to do with the transfer value, I, I don't actually think they can, um, which means there's a gap there um, where members' interests are not being properly protected. Thank you very much for your time, uh, for coming across from Cape Town to, to, to present to us today. Uh, we always love listening to you and we find your sessions very informative. And on behalf of the RMC of the Actuarial Society of South Africa, we'd like to thank you for everything that you did for us this afternoon. Thanks very much, John.